Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, thanks for being here tonight. My name is Chad Ragsdale. I know some of you, a lot of you I don't know. Um, Jason, the, the regular teacher, is actually in Ireland, I think, again tonight. Um, you know, just a quick trip. Um, so he's in Ireland, and you got me instead. Um, I, uh, I teach at Ozark Christian College, and um, been good friend with Jason for a while. At least I think I am. Hopefully he'll listen to this podcast and, and know that. Um, but Jason asked me to fill in for him tonight, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to be in James chapter 1 tonight. And uh, I'm going to start off with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive right in. So let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for bringing us together this evening. And uh, we pause in the midst of um, all the busyness and noisiness and oftentimes confusion and frustration in the world around us. We pause and we gather together um, to enjoy each other's community and also to learn and be shaped by your word. And uh, God, I pray that you would uh, bless us in this study tonight. I pray for each person here that you would uh, bring your peace to their lives through your Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, help us to be mutual encouragements to each other. Um, and uh, we do pray for Jason as he's uh, traveling. Um, I pray that his trip would be a great success and uh, that he would come home safely and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so around your tables... Uh, real quick, just to foster some communication. Hi, Danica. Um, I would like you to do something for me real quick. I would like you to share around the table. I'm not going to give you a lot of time to do this. But share around the table some proverbial wisdom that has been handed down to you through the years. Maybe from mom, maybe from grandma, maybe whoever. But just some proverbial wisdom that's been handed down to you through the years. Go ahead and share some of those things with each other, and then we'll talk. All right, so hit me with some pearls of wisdom. What, what sorts of things did you share around your tables? Hit me with some wisdom tonight. Who wants to volunteer some words of wisdom? Yes. Well, when you first got married, an old lady in my home church told me not do anything the first two weeks of marriage that I didn't plan to do the rest of my life. Oh, don't do anything the first two, two weeks of marriage. Really? Interesting. <laughs> okay, so set the bar low, in other words, is what she's saying. <laughs> don't make any promises. Don't write any checks that you can't cash 50 years from now. Yeah, interesting. Set that bar nice and low. <laughs> okay. Uh, other words of wisdom. My wife's parents went ahead and told her, honey, you've already set the bar pretty low with that guy. So, um, What other words of wisdom have you received through the years? Come on, I heard lots of talking. You run with a skunk, you smell like a skunk. That's true. That's, that's very true. Somebody else. Words of. 
Right? Yeah, we've all heard that one, right? You can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Um, huh? Don't spit in a fan. Yeah. Yeah. Other words of wisdom. sounds like my dad. My dad was always, always that way. Still is, actually. Still is. Like, he'll walk around my car and check my tires. I'm almost 40 years old. My dad still takes a stroll around my car. You know, one of your tires, your tires just a little bit bald. You might want to think about getting that rotated. Thanks, dad. I do appreciate it, though. I do. Somebody else? My dad used to say, like, if I had a question, I'd ask him the question and say, why does this do that and say to make you ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's wisdom other than just brushing you off. <laughs> yeah. What else? Yeah. Don't so what what's the what's the thought process there? Yeah. I was from Oregon and I moved out here. Well Sean, where are you from? Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. So my mom said, don't date any girls that live east of the Rockies. <laughs> oh, because you'll never come back. That, well, you know, it's hard to argue with that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else. Never talk bad about your spouse to anyone else. Oh, that's good advice. That's great advice. That's great advice. Good. Yeah, James actually has a lot to say about words. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Anybody else? Well, here's, here's, why, here's why I started with that question. And you guys have been in James now, I think, what, a couple weeks maybe. Um, and uh, so you may have already covered this. But James essentially is a wisdom book. Um, wisdom is about more than knowledge. Wisdom is about making right choices based on knowledge. Um, wisdom is about a lifestyle. It's about, um, it's about applying and living out that which we already know. And that's really what James is largely about. And one of the reasons why people really like James. Um, you know, I've been doing ministry for about 15 years now, and I can't think of the number of times that I've been asked to teach on James or do a series on James. People just really like, they really appreciate James because it does tend to be so practical. It kind of hits us between the eyes. Um, It challenges us with, this is what a wise life um, um, in the eyes of the Lord looks like. Now, the wisdom of God is not always the same as the wisdom of the world, and I think we know that. The wisdom of of the kingdom, the wisdom of God, is oftentimes very different than the wisdom of this world. And James actually has a lot to say about that. Um, But this book is about making wise choices. It's about that practical, everyday type of wisdom. And our text that that I was asked to speak on today is in James chapter 1, starting at verse 19. And the beginning part of this passage actually sounds a lot like one of those pearls of wisdom that you could imagine grandma passing down to you. or what. It, it, this just sounds like those types of statements. So he begins in verse 19. I'm going to read all the way to verse 27. Um, he says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, this pa- in this passage in James, there are at least three that I can count anyway. There are at least three self-deceptions that James is warning us about. Ways that we deceive ourselves. And I'd like you, you, most of you, you have Bibles open in front of you. I'd like you to go through this text on your own. Just take a second on your own. Go through this text. I already read it. But look at it on your own and see if you can identify what these self-deceptions are. I'll give you a moment just to re-look at the text and you tell me what some of these self-deceptions are. So what do you think? What, what self-deceptions do you see in this text? Listening instead of doing. That's actually one, yeah. Listening instead of doing. Don't just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but actually do what it says. And we'll talk about that. That's, that's one self-deception um, in this passage. There's at least two more. You know what they are? The first one is about anger. The first one is about anger. Deceiving ourselves that our anger can actually bring about the type of righteousness that God really desires. Uh, so controlling our anger. What's that? Justified anger. Justified anger. Justifying, at least in our own mind, our anger, our lack of control there. Uh, there's a third self-deception, too, towards the end of the text. Yeah, keeping a tight... Yeah, at the end of the text, he talks about true religion, right? And we're going to close our time together tonight talking about what that is. But true religion is about keeping a tight rein on your tongue and also caring for those who are at risk. And you're fooling yourself if you consider yourself religious and you're not willing to at least do those two things. Keep a tight rein on your tongue and help those who are at risk. So three self-deceptions. Again, wrapped up in wisdom. This is James giving us wisdom here or, or trying to instill within us wisdom. Three things that we need to be aware of that we routinely deceive ourselves in. Um, we lie best to ourselves, don't we? We are best at lying when we are lying to ourselves because we are more prone to believe our own lies than anyone else's lies. And three ways, and there are many different ways that we try to fool ourselves or deceive ourselves into thinking one way about ourselves when really we should think a different way about ourselves. James highlights three in this text. The first deception is, is assuming that our anger can bring about righteousness, the righteousness that God desires. Second one is um, um, not just hearing the word and not doing the word. And then the third one is about true religion. So let's, let's break these down one by one. I'm going to go back and reread that first paragraph. He says, my, be- my dear brothers, take note of this. So pay attention. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What do you suppose the relationship is between those three things? 
He says, slow to, or quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What is, to me, of those three things, anger just kind of drop, jumps out at the page. Like, I get slow to speak and quick to listen. Like, I get the relationship between those. But why throw anger into the mix? What is the relationship between anger and listening and speaking? What do you suppose there? What's the relationship? When, when, you're, when you're angry, you're not listening. That's true, right? That, that, you ever notice that? When you're really angry, when you lose control, the very last thing that you want to do is listen. Because listening requires humility. Listening, listening requires self-control and self-restraint, none of which we're very prone to do when we're angry. So good. Somebody else had, had a comment on this. What's that? You don't think about what you say when you're angry. Right. You just know you're angry, and you just you just want to beat somebody up with your words, yeah, right? That's usually wrong. It's, in my case. It is. Well, I think, well, for my case, too, at least. I don't want to speak on behalf of everybody. But, um, but yeah, we, we kind of disengage our brains and our ears when we, when we lose control, when we get angry. Um, Yeah, there's an escalation there, isn't there? Um, so, so maybe one of the best ways, if you are, if you do struggle with anger, and we all do from time to time, some of us more than others, but if you do struggle with anger, I think James would say one of the first things that you need to train yourself to do is train yourself to listen, especially in those moments where you start to feel that you're losing control a little bit. Stop speaking and listen. Um, is one of the first steps in regaining that self-control. It's interesting, this word for anger, though, um, it, it, it means rage. It, it means, uh, in, in various contexts, it means um, almost like vengeance is what this particular word means. Um, I, I don't think in Scripture, I don't, I don't think we can say that Scripture says to be angry is to be sinful. I think, I think there are occasions where anger is natural, I think there are occasions where anger might even be appropriate, uh, but the anger that he's talking about in this text seems to be the type of vengeful anger, the type of rage, um, the type of zealous anger. That you Notice what he says, slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Sometimes we, justi- we try to justify our anger by saying, but I'm right. But I'm right. They're wrong. They need to know that. And the only way to com- really communicate that is by losing my temper. <laughs> I don't know how that logic really works in our head, but when we're angry, we're not really dealing with logic. So the only way to really communicate the fact that I'm right, right and they're wrong is by losing it, right? And we think that there's that justification for our anger then. I don't need to listen to you anymore, okay? Shut your mouth. You're done talking because I've already decided that you're wrong and I'm right. And I'm going to communicate that by losing my self-control. And James is like, you realize that's nuts, right? You realize that that doesn't make any sense. That our anger doesn't bring about, that's not how we bring about righteousness. That's not how we bring about good fruit. And listen, I, I, I am one who struggles with anger as much, if not more, than anyone else. So this, this verse really is a challenge to me because in my mind I think, I'm right I don't need to have the debate. I don't need to have the conversation. I'm right, and I just need to communicate that as quickly as possible. And James is like, cut it out. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. Because if you're quick to speak, 
slow to listen, you will be prone to anger. And then he says, he goes on to say, therefore get rid of all moral filth um, and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So now he's taking it to the next level. He's not, when he starts this, this paragraph and he says, be slow to speak, quick to listen, our immediate thought is quick to listen to other people, right? In conversation, I need to be quick to listen, slow to speak. And that's true, I think. That's true. But in this verse, he kind of changes it up a little bit. He says, oh yeah, and by the way, as long as you're listening, you need to listen to the word which is most important, and that's the word of God. Instead of losing your temper, instead of being quick to speak and quick to become angry, you need to humbly accept the word that's been planted in you, the word that can save you. You want to know about how to bring about righteousness. You want to know how to bring about the righteous life that God desires. James says, humbly accept the word that's been planted in you. Humbly accept the word of God. Get rid of, uh, the NIV says, get rid of the moral filth. I think I have another, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I love the King James translation of this verse. I actually have it up here. The King James translation of this verse, it's in all of its King Jamesian glory. Okay, verse 21 says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Lay apart all filthiness and naughtiness. I like that translation. It sounds like my mom, really. Um, Get rid of the filthiness and naughtiness and humbly accept that word that's been planted in you. That word accept in James, um, it's it's a hospitality word. It's a word with your arms wide open. Um, Like, you know, I teach at Ozark, so we we have a lot of students that you know, maybe the first time they'll go home all semester is Thanksgiving break. So they'll be away from home two, maybe even three months away from home. And so I, you know, imagine you're pulling into your driveway. You've been away from home for a couple months. You've been away from mom, you've been away from dad. You pull into the driveway, you get out of the car, and mom comes running out of the house to greet you. Don't give me your laundry yet. Just give me a hug, right? Just give me a hug. Arms wide open. And that's what this word means. Arms wide open. Humbly accept the word that's been planted in you. It's a hospitality word. It's a welcoming word. So James says, understand, understand the stuff going on in your own life. Understand the stuff going on in your own heart that might keep you from hearing the word of God clearly. Some, some wisdom that all of our parents said to us at one time or another is when we're not listening. My mom, anyway, any, anyways, would always say, do I need to clean out your ears? Do I need to clean out your ears so you can hear me clearly? That's kind of what James is saying. We need to assess ourselves and recognize that there's things in my own life that actually are, these things are keeping me from hearing God's word clearly. Whenever I teach biblical interpretation at Ozark, one of the things I tell my students is, if you want to understand scripture well, one of the first things that you have to do is understand yourself well. You have to understand what are those things in my life that really need to be addressed? What are those things in my life that really get in the way of me following Jesus with authenticity, with sincerity? What, to use James's word, what are the, what's the filthiness and naughtiness that I need to clean up if I'm really going to hear God's word and accept it humbly? Okay? So the first self-deception 
is that we can bring about God's righteousness. Um, that we can bring about God's righteousness through anger. Um, the second self-deception is uh, in the second paragraph, which I'm going to read for us again. Um, James says in verse 22, and this kind of takes off from the first paragraph. The first paragraph, he says, humbly accept the word that's been planted in you, the word that can save you. So accept the word of God, but he does, he's not willing to stop there. He's not done with us quite yet when it comes to really understanding God's word. Because he says in verse 22, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Um, Just real quick, looking at those two paragraphs, we've already talked about this a little bit, but looking at those first two paragraphs, if you are going to explain to someone else, this is how you effectively study God's word, just based on these two paragraphs, what would you say? If you were going to explain to someone else, this is how you effectively study God's word, what are some of the things that you would say just based on these two paragraphs? Again, we've already talked about it a little bit, but what would you say? Put what you read into practice. Good. What else would you say? Yeah. Instead of listen, maybe like read slowly and don't talk about it like you know really quick. Yeah. I, that's, that's one of the things that I say in, in my classes at Ozark. One of the very first lessons that I give students when it comes to reading scripture. Because listen, we all get, we all get frustrated with scripture. Um, from time to time for various reasons. One of the reasons that we get frustrated with scripture sometimes is we've had people in our lives, people like me, people like our preachers, our teachers, people come along inside, alongside of us and say, well, if you want to be a good Christian, you need to be in the word. You need to read the word. You need to do. And so read, read the word and pray, right? Like those are the two favorite prescriptions of every preacher everywhere. Read the word and pray. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. The problem is we sit down with the word. Preacher told me I got to be in the word, right? Preacher told me I need to read the Bible. And we sit down with the word, and it's like there's no magic that happens immediately. Like we don't hear angels singing. We don't have, we don't have this melting in our heart. Like, well, what's the deal? It's not working. It's broken. Like what's, why isn't this having, and there's a lot of weird stuff in here, a lot of stuff I don't understand and it's not making sense. Like, and so we get frustrated with the process and before long, you know what happens? We shut the Bible, we put it away, and we're like, well, I'll just go to church next Sunday and have Mark explain it to me. Um, that, but that's the process, right? I mean, am I, am I speaking truth to you? That's kind of the frustration that a lot of us have. And my goodness, Bible reading plans. Um, I like Bible reading plans. Matter of fact, last year I was on a Bible reading plan. I wanted to get through the whole Bible in a year. And, and so I had on my, um, on my phone, I had an alert every single day. told me, these are the chapters that you need to read today. And I did it. And just for my personality, that was great because I'm a very task-oriented person. I love checking off things on my list. And so it was very... But there's also something about a Bible reading plan that can hold us back from really understanding God's Word because we tend to turn it into a task that has to be completed rather than a conversation that we need to have with God. Um, here's, here's the way I put it. Um, 
we engage in different types of reading all the time. Whether you realize it or not, we engage in different types of reading all the time. So if you think about a newspaper or your favorite website that you go to every morning when you wake up to catch up on the news, what type of reading do you do of the newspaper? What type of, how would you characterize that reading? You scan it. You scan, what are you trying to get out of it? The highlights, information, right? Yeah, that's all you're expecting to get. I just want to get the information. Whose fault was it that Brad and Angelina's marriage didn't last? Like, that's all I want to know. Just tell me. I mean, so <laughs> that's, that's the type of reading that we do. Now, a lot of us, we read for fun. Uh, we read novels. We read fiction. We, we read books for fun. So isn't that a different type of reading than reading the newspaper? What, what are your expectations there? Huh? Entertainment, right? Diversion. You want to ha- have your imagine cap- imagination captivated, maybe. But it's a different type of reading than a newspaper. Um, my students have to read a lot of textbooks, right? Have to read a lot of textbooks. Now, are these textbooks the joy of your life? Yeah, absolutely. Right, sure. Um, yeah, that $150 psychology textbook. <laughs> yeah. A textbook, we read textbooks out of obligation, out of duty, because maybe we want to get a good grade in the class or whatever. So it's, if we had a choice to read that psychology textbook or not, like if it was just up to us, we wouldn't read it. But if it was assigned to us and we know our grade might depend on it, then it's an obligation, it's a duty. So how do we read scripture then? Of those three methods of reading, how do you find yourself reading scripture? It's tough, right? Because some of us, maybe we read scripture like a newspaper. I just want to get the information. I want to find out what's going on in the text, okay? Well, that's fine. Uh, Maybe we read the text for entertainment. There are some entertaining stories in the text. There are some things that captivate our imagination. Um, Maybe we read the text out out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of duty, right? Like, well, preacher told me I need to do it, so I guess I'll do it. I think there's a different, there's a fourth kind of reading, though, that we sometimes neglect. The fourth type of reading is this. Um, when my wife and I were dating, um, I, uh, I went to the Philippines for several weeks. Uh, I, I was going to be gone for over, a little bit over three weeks. And, you know, we're young, we're in love. She was trying to figure out how she was ever going to survive without me for that period of time, you know. Um, and so she, she sent me to the Philippines with a manila envelope full of individual cards and letters that I was supposed to open up each day while I was gone, right? Very romantic. I didn't do anything for her. Um, but um, so she did that. And, um, and so each day I had something, some new card, some new letter to open up. Now, how do you suppose I read those cards and letters? Did I read them like a newspaper? Did I read them like a novel? Did I read them out of obligation? Well, she's going to ask me when I got back if I read this thing. I better read it. Um, no. It's a different kind of reading, right? It's, it's, it's a slow reading. It's a methodical reading. Why? Because there's a relationship. And I really want to know what's on her heart. I really want to know what she has to say to me. So I read differently because there's a relationship involved. So, one, Caleb, you're right. One of the very first things that I say is, slow down your reading. Slow down. 
and just ask certain questions of the text. What is God saying in this text? And sometimes the answer is going to be, I don't have the foggiest idea. And that's okay. You know what that means? That means you have more to learn. That means you have more areas to grow in, and that's fine. But slow down your reading. Look for the details in the text. Details that you would have otherwise missed because you're just rushing through it. It's like when I'm reading that letter from my wife. I slow down and I notice every word. I notice every phrase. Why? Because I really want to know what's on her heart. When you're reading a text like James, slow down. See things there that you've never seen before. Um, Give you another metaphor. It's sort of like the difference between my daily drive to work and a drive through the mountains. Okay, my daily drive to work, I promise you, I pass houses every day on my way to work that I've never seen before, even though I've passed that house literally hundreds of times. Why? Because it's just the monotony, right? I'm not paying attention, so I miss it. But if I'm driving through the mountains, I'm seeing everything. Actually, I'm a hazard to everybody else on the road because I'm looking everywhere, right? I'm noticing every little thing. And that's, and that's similar to our experience as we are reading and studying scripture, Our tendency is we just rush right past it and we miss things there that are really important where if we just slow down, pay attention, we'll see them. Anything else from these paragraphs that are, that's important to note about how we accept the word that's been planted in us? We already talked about self-reflection, you know, understanding ourselves. What are those areas that we know the text needs to address? What are those things that God needs to address in me? What else? Yeah, intently looks into the, this is, this is a serious study. This is an in-depth study. And it, he doesn't just say intensely, intently looks into the word. He also adds this little statement. He says, and continues to do so. The implication being, you will never completely mind the depths of God's word. There will always be something for you to learn. There will always be something for you to be, to discover. For instance, I've taught or I've preached on the parable of the prodigal son dozens of times. It's one of the most familiar texts of scripture to all people. You could take a person that's completely unchurched, a person that doesn't know anything about the Bible, doesn't know anything about church, and if you talk to them, if you mention the phrase prodigal son, they'll kind of sort of know what you're talking about, right? It's a very familiar text. But every single time I study that text, every time I preach or teach my way through that text, I see something new that I missed before. There's always something new to discover. So James says, continue to do this. Look intently into the word. Um, The word that brings freedom. Um, What else? Anything else? Yeah. Don't forget what you heard, right? This sounds like a little bit of wisdom, doesn't it? You know, when you're leaving the house, going out on the weekend, you know, our parents would say, don't forget who you are. Don't forget what I, I dropped my son off at church tonight, dropped him off at the fifth and sixth grade building. And I told him, boy, you better make good choices tonight. You better listen to your teacher. You better make good choices. Don't forget. Right. And that's kind of what James is reminding us of. Don't forget those elementary lessons that you've heard. Don't forget what you've learned. Don't as you're living your life. Every day, reflect on how God's word impacts your life. And one of, one of the only ways I've discovered that that actually can happen is when you're praying your way through the text. 
when you're meditating on the text and even memorizing the text, what I've found in my life is when I'm studying Scripture intently, all of a sudden, I encounter a situation in my daily life where that text comes to bear. My, uh, my, I always think of my grandma here. My grandma had a worldview that was shaped by the words of Scripture. My grandma didn't have any formal Bible training or anything like that, but she had a worldview shaped by Scripture, so much so that it seemed like nothing ever happened to her in her life that didn't have some sort of implication or reflection back on Scripture. And I remember as a kid hearing my grandma talk just being kind of amazed at that. How does this woman know so much Scripture that every single thing that seems to happen to her has some sort of scriptural application? It's because she didn't, re- she didn't forget what she had learned. She was meditating on it, dwelling on it so much that in her daily routine, it just was applicable. It, it just sort of lived itself out. The last thing I want to say here is he does, I think the biggest idea from this paragraph is don't just hear the word, but do the word. One of the big ideas from the book of James is this idea of um, consistency. And it's, it's in every chapter of the book, consistency. Um, he wants, you know, he talks about our prayer life, be consistent in our prayer life. Chapter two, he talks about um, wealth and how wealth can be kind of deceptive. And he says, you need to be consistent. If you know what glory looks like in Jesus, then don't assign glory to the wealth of this world. Be consistent. All the way through this book, he's, he's hammering on this point. There should be a consistency between what you believe and how you act. There should be a consistency between what you believe and how you act. And here in James chapter 1, he says, there should also be consistency between hearing the word and also putting it into practice. It's not enough just to know it up here. It's not enough just to fill yourself up with Scripture. Come to church every Sunday. Come to church every Wednesday night. Learn and know more about Scripture than anyone else if you're not also willing to put it into practice. There is a seduction in Bible knowledge where we can kind of feel self-satisfied. Oh, well, look at me. Don't I know a lot of Scripture? I read Scripture today. I must be a super-duper person. You know, like we kind of get puffed up on knowledge, just the fact that we know scripture. And James says, you're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You think that you're a good person just because you know scripture? No. What really matters is, are you allowing it to transform the way you live your life? It's not about how much you know. It's about whether or not it's being applied, whether or not it's being lived out. Um. You think about it this way. There, there are different... Um, I used to teach speech at Ozark. Um, didn't love teaching speech, but hey, it was a job. Um, so I, I used to teach speech, um, and one of the things that I would talk about in speech was what characterizes effective communication, like even interpersonal communication. What counts for good communication? And if you think about it, communication happens at various different levels. The first level of communication is hearing, right? That's the foundational, that's the the first step in communication is hearing. You're not going to communicate well unless you're being heard. And so we would talk about environmental distractions, how sometimes there's just distractions in the room, there's noises going on, there's a baby crying, there's whatever, that keep you from being heard well. 
or maybe you're mumbling, or maybe you're speaking a language that isn't easily understood, and so it keeps you from being heard. So the first, the first step in communication is to draw within the hearing distance, right? So, you know, we all do this in our homes. We try to communicate across the home, right? We try to, like, you're in the bathroom over here, and your spouse is, like, in the basement on the other side of the house, and, like, you're trying to have a conversation with each other, right? We all do this, and it's so dumb that we do this. So we're speaking to each other at the top of our lungs, not really communicating whatsoever. Why? Because we can't hear each other. It's best just to be quiet and then draw within that hearing distance. That's where communication can actually take place. That's the first step. But hearing alone is not where communication ends. The second step of communication is attending. Attending which is not just hearing, it's, it's really understanding or paying attention to what's being heard. This is, the, this is intellectually understanding what's being said, attending, intellectually understanding. And this is always discouraging when I would tell my speech students this. At any given moment when you're speaking publicly, less than 15% of your audience is actually attending to your words. It's a little bit discouraging. That means only 15%, well, more than you now because I've called attention to it. But at any given time, yeah, now you're like, no, 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 I'm listening. Not this guy, but I'm listening for sure. Um, only about 15%, because we're not, listening is hard for us. And believe me, it's even harder for college students today. Sorry. Um, but college students today have grown up in a culture that has basically trained them to be perpetually distracted, and it's really hard to pay attention. It's really hard to take that second step of communication. It takes work. It takes effort to, to actually not just hear, but actually pay attention. But communication doesn't even stop there. Now, for a lot of men, it stops there. Um, but the next step of communication is not just attentive listening, it's also affective listening. That's the third step, is affective listening. So what that means is I don't just understand what you're saying, I also understand how you're feeling. Um, I, I, I may not feel the same way myself necessarily, but I at least have that emotional awareness <laughs> in what you're saying. And this is the problem that a lot of husbands have with their wives or a lot of men have with women, just speaking stereotypically. Um, 93% of our communication is nonverbal, 93%, which means my tone of voice, my hand gestures, facial expressions, whatever. 93% of our communication is nonverbal. Only 7% is the literal words that we're using. Now, which percentage do you suppose men are more inclined to listen to stereotypically? That 7%. So when you told me nothing was wrong, I was just dumb enough to believe you, okay? Um, because that's what we tend to listen to. We tend to listen to the literal words. And then my wife says, but, but you weren't really listening. You, don't, you didn't really get me. It's because I wasn't paying attention to those kind of nonverbal cues. Like, oh, what you said was actually the opposite of what you wanted me to hear. Um, but that's affective listening. That's affective listening. It's actually listening beyond just intellectual, the intellectual level and actually listening emotionally, understanding what's being felt. Um, but communication doesn't stop there either. So we have hearing, we have attending, we have affecting, and then we have responding. 
Um, and response can look any number of different ways. Sometimes it's a simple nod of the head, letting you know, yes, I, I get it, I understand what you're saying. Sometimes that's the best response, by the way. Maybe the worst response is to open your mouth. Um, but maybe the best response is, yeah, that's, that sucks. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Um, maybe that's the best response. Sometimes it's just a simple nod of the head, uh, but sometimes it's action. Putting, putting what was just said into action, responding. And that's really what James is saying in James chapter 1. He's saying that's, if, if scripture is this relationship between a God who has spoken and people who are listening, if scripture is sort of mediating that relationship, then we have to be able to move from hearing to attending to affecting, understanding God's heart in the text, and then eventually responding asking the question, what does this text ask of my life? Is this text asking me to live in a different way? Is this text asking me to think in a different way? Is this text asking me to feel in a different way? What is this passage asking me to be or to do? That's, that's what James is talking about, moving beyond just hearing to doing. And then the third self-deception Oh, we're doing great on time. Okay. The third self-deception is that we, um, we, uh, we have a self-deception in regards to what counts as true religion or pure religion. Verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he's, he's going to talk a lot about that in chapter 3. Um, matter of fact, that's almost the entire chapter uh, talking about the tongue. He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let me ask you this question. What is your best definition of religion? What's your best definition of religion? I'll let you think about it. Give you a couple seconds to think about it. Your best definition of religion. We use this word all the time. Sometimes words we use a lot, we don't really know what they mean, though. So what is religion? Best definition. What's religion? Actually, no, I'm going I'm to frame that differently. How does the world define religion? How does the world define religion? A belief system. A belief system? Okay, yeah. Relationship with a higher power. I have, by the way, I have this debate all the time. Well, one of the classes that I teach at uh, Ozark is apologetics, which is basically why you believe what you believe, defending your beliefs, whatever. So I have this debate. Literally, this is one of the most common debates I have with atheists. Um, because atheists hate being told that they have religious beliefs. Um, because that's kind of the deal with atheism, right? Like, I've rejected religion, I've rejected God. And they hate, they despise someone to come alongside of them and say, no, you don't. You have religious beliefs, just like everyone else. Your religious beliefs just don't happen to involve a creator God. But you have religious beliefs. Every single person that you've ever met and that you ever will meet is religious. Every single person that you've ever met or every, ever will meet worships something. Now, that something may not be God, the way we talk about God, but everybody's worshiping something. To worship something simply means that you've oriented your life around something. 
Some people worship NFL football. And I don't say that lightly. It literally is worship because their entire lives have been oriented around this thing. Some people worship their children because their entire lives have been oriented around their children and their experiences. Some people worship their jobs. Some people worship their houses. We all worship something, right? We all worship something. The question is, is that something worthy of our worship? That's the question. So I have this debate all the time about can an atheist be a religious person? And I would say most atheists that I've met are more religious than most Christians I've met because they are so passionate in their atheism. I tell, I tell them all the time, I'm like, man, if I could just get half the Christians I know to be as passionate for their beliefs as you are for your beliefs, we'd, we'd all be better off. Um, what else is religion? How, would you, how, how does the world define religion? Faith, so it involves faith, sure. What else? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's how we use the word, isn't it? Doing something. Re- so there's a repetition, a ritual to it, sure. Rules. Most people, when they think of religion, even inside the church or outside the church, they think in terms of do's and don'ts, right? Rules to follow. What else? How, how do you define religion? Life purpose, that I call it the central organizing principle, the thing that makes our life make sense, the thing that holds our life together. That's, that's, and we express that in religion. Here's, here's a, and those are all good answers. Um, I like to define things in pictures. Um, so one, one of the ways that I like to define religion is by thinking about a balloon. Um, the air coming out of my mouth right now, you can hear it. You can't see it, though. You can't see the air coming out of my mouth. But were I to get a balloon and blow up that balloon, all of a sudden, you would have a physical representation of the air coming out of my mouth. All of a sudden, the air coming out of my mouth has boundaries, has shape, size, color even. All of a sudden, now you can see it, right? That's what religion is. Religion is the outward expression of deeply held spiritual beliefs. So, let me give you an example of this. We believe that God has provided for us everything that we have. We believe that. Now, maybe we don't consistently live out that belief the way that we should, but we believe that. that all, and James even talks about that, right? How every good and perfect uh, gift comes from above. So how does that get expressed religiously? One of the ways that that gets expressed religiously is what James talks about here, giving. Giving to others who are in need. If I believe that all everything that I have is from God anyway, And if I believe also, secondarily, if I believe that all people are valuable and created in God's image, then why would I, number three, why would I then not use the gifts that God has given me to bless other people who are on the margins, who are at risk, who are in need? See, so my religion is an outward expression of something that I believe. Or, for instance, I have a belief that God is sovereign over the entire universe, that God has given me life, that God has saved me and given me hope for the future, 
How does that get expressed in my life? Well, one of the ways that that gets expressed is I want to take every opportunity that I can to redirect praise back to God, to give thanks to God. And so I come and I lift my voice in praise. I sing songs of worship. Even if sometimes I feel weird, even if sometimes I feel like I'm not the best singer, I feel like that's an appropriate expression of thanks to my creator. See, religion, I think, gets this bad rap because we think it's just rules, regulations. But we need, and I like, I like this idea of ritual. We ritualize those things that are most important to us. We do. Every time, all the time. We ritualize, think about your life. The things that are most important to you, you ritualize those things. Right? Let's go back to this football illustration. People that worship football, you better believe there's a ritual involved in their weekly exercise of worship, right? So they, they don the proper apparel, they eat the appropriate food, they sit in the exact spot that they want to sit in. Usually it's the same spot every single week. They ritualize their beliefs. We ritualize everything that way. The things that are most important to us, we ritualize. The things that we don't care about, guess what? We don't ritualize those things. We have no pattern. We have no ritual. We are ritual people. We are people of habit. The things that are most important to us, we develop habits around those things. You ritualize your work. You ritualize your work. Um, we, even shopping is a form of ritual, which I, I, I could go on and on about this, but we ritualize those things that are very important to us. Um, and so I, I, I get frustrated. One of my little pet peeves, is I get frustrated when Christians say, I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not religious. Because what I hear them saying is, I don't like to put boundaries or rituals or even tangible expressions on my spirituality. I like my spirituality sort of be, to be just like the air coming out of my mouth right now. Invisible. Right? It's, a, it's my own personal thing. Right? It's, it's my own personal belief. I don't like to actually put it into practice. That's what I hear when I hear people say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. What I want to respond back to them is, well, okay, but what are you religious about then? If you're not religious when it comes to your spiritual beliefs, what things in your life are you, in fact, religious about? Because there's always something. There's always something in your life that you're giving tangible expression to. Okay? So James, James is a fan of religion, as is Jesus, by the way. Jesus was a fan of religion, too, because Jesus actually talked about things like prayer, things like worship, things like giving to the poor. These are all religious things. Jesus went to the temple. Very, it doesn't get much more religious than that. Um, but you know what Jesus was, was also very concerned about? He was concerned that we're not just satisfied with being outwardly religious, he was also concerned that it reflected an inward reality. Because the problem with a lot of people in Jesus' day is, if you looked at their lives, you would say, well, that's a very religious person. They're doing all the things that you should do if you're a religious person. And Jesus said, oh, but that's not enough. That's not enough. Talk to me about your heart. Talk to me about what you're really passionate about. Does your outward reality reflect your inward reality? James is kind of turning that around. James says, maybe your heart's in the right place, 
but are you living that out in appropriate ways? That's what James is So James is asking a little bit different question. Are you living out your faith in appropriate ways? And so he says two things. He says, um, and I think if, if James were here, he could probably even add to the list, but he mentions at least two things. He says, the two things that are important for any person that considers himself religious is keep a tight rein on your tongue. And second thing, um, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So I guess he mentions three things, actually. Three things. Keep a tight rein on your tongue. Look out for those who are in need. Don't be blind to their need, but actually help them in their need. Um, and you realize widows and orphans, especially in the first century, those were the most at-risk people in any society. That's still true to a certain extent today, but it was much more true in the first century. Um, these people were the most at-risk of anyone in society. And James is saying, if you want to be considered a, a rightly religious person, you will care for them and their needs. And then thirdly, um, keeps oneself from being polluted by the world. So I would use the word holiness. Holiness. That my life is holy and devoted to God. That I'm not living for the things of this world. I'm living for the things of God. Um, okay, so we got some time left. So let me hear back from you guys on this. What on, on, this, on this third point, anything that we're missing on, when, it comes to, when it comes to religion, tell, give me your feedback on this. Any questions that you would ask of the text or any feedback that you would give? Anything at all? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. Right. But we had a lady, a patient, that um, had a church shirt on. Mm-hmm. Worked at the church in Joplin, and um, she came in, and she was so rude and hateful. Yeah. And just as and cussing and everything else, and she's just like, "There it is. See, there's your Christian, right. Christina. You know, and it's, and it's like you're one of those things that you're like, wait, you know, it's yeah. Not, I mean, and I would, you know, it's a, kind of the same thing. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, it's right. If you're trying to win people over, you know, to God. I mean, Yeah, one, in, in my experience, um, the second biggest factor that keeps people away from God um, is the behavior that they observe in followers of God. Now, now by the way, the, first, the, the, the number one reason that keeps people away from God is pain and suffering in their lives. Um, they've experienced pain and suffering, and so they've turned their back on God as a result which is kind of a conversation for another day. Um, now, I think for a lot of people, that's a convenient excuse. Uh, I, so I don't want to completely let them off the hook. I think it's a convenient excuse. I don't have to worry about the God thing. You know why? Because that person's a jerk. That's actually not very good reasoning. That's, that's pretty poor logic, actually. Um, it's like saying, I don't trust arithmetic, because I heard this guy over here say 2 plus 2 equals 4, and also he's a giant jerk. And so because he's a jerk, 2 plus 2 must not equal 4. It's like really bad logic. It's really bad reasoning. But still, people use that all the time, right? Like, I'm going to reject the existence of God because of this doofus over here wearing a church shirt. Um, But nevertheless, that is the perception, right? 
And so for us, since we know that is the perception, guess what? There's no use crying about it. There's no use whining about it. It's the reality. So what that means is we need to watch our lives all the more closely. Um, my wife, she deals with this on a regular basis at the hospital, you know, and um, my wife is not one of these people that is um, openly and vocally evangelistic every chance that she gets, but at the same time, I'll brag on her a little bit, uh, at the same time, she's very consistent in offering compassion and offering understanding and in, in, in being a person that is a friend, you know, a friend that you can talk to about different things. And because of that, people that she works with, they understand, yeah, even though there are hypocritical Christians in our lives that we see, that we work with, I know I can trust Tara. There's something different about it. So there's an authenticity there. There's a sincerity there that we have to be mindful of um, every day because we, we are climbing this uphill um, battle. Uh, an, an author that I read several years ago made a, a really interesting point that I, I'll share with you now. He said that there are two different kinds of hypocrisy. You know, we know what hypocrisy is, right? Hypocrisy is being inauthentic, putting on a mask, pretending to be one thing when you're actually another thing. He says there's two different kinds of hypocrisy, though. There's one kind of hypocrisy that we should avoid. There's another type of hypocrisy that we should actually embrace. The first type of hypocrisy that we should avoid is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Or the hypocrisy of a person who spent the morning at church on Sunday morning and then they go out to eat Sunday lunch and treat the waitress uh, horribly. That's the type of hypocrisy that we are right to avoid. But the type of hypocrisy that he says we should embrace is this. We live in a culture that says you should be yourself no matter what. You should be your most authentic self. Like that's, that's a virtue in our culture. Be your most authentic self. And so we kind of grow up, and especially the generation that I work with, college age generation, like we kind of grow up saying, I'm gonna, I'm kind of gonna be bold in my sin. Because, because I don't want to be fake, right? I don't want to be fake. I don't want to be plastic. Don't want to be a hypocrite. So I'm just gonna put everything out there unapologetically, I'm going to sin boldly, right? Because I got to be myself. I got to be authentic. I got to be who I am, which is, um, which is exactly, I think, the wrong thing that we've been called to. I think there is a type of hypocrisy that we have been called to, a type of hypocrisy that says, my most authentic self is broken. It's broken. My most authentic self is messed up. And so if I'm going to follow God in my life, I've got to learn to put on virtues that maybe don't come naturally for me. I've got to learn to speak in ways that are tough for me because I'd rather speak in these other ways. I've got to learn how to control my temper even though my most authentic self wants to indulge my temper. So he says that's the type of hypocrisy that a Christian actually should learn to embrace where we're pursuing a holy standard for our lives. But what you're saying is exactly right. There's a type of hypocrisy in the world, and the world is always so quick to pick up on this. Like, we can see it a mile away, right? And that's the type of hypocrisy that we have to avoid, like the plague. Um, becoming plastic. and It's a self-righteousness, right, that the world can see through. Um, any other uh, reflections on this? Sure. I, mean, I definitely present the wrong. I mean, I'm 
going to mess up. Mm -hmm. So we're all going to mess up. Right. So we could all be that doofus or yeah. whatever who's wearing the shirt. Sure. Who people know goes to church, but you messed up one day. So, you know, if, if it's all based on us. Yeah. Like, I always have to make sure before I treat a waitress badly that I'm not wearing an Ozark t-shirt. <laughs> I always have to make sure. Um, no. Uh, but, yeah, we, we all, right? We all, we all fall into this. We all fall into this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think what we've been called to in the world is, um, I always go back to 1 Peter 2, where Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood. And just kind of dwell on that imagery for a second, a royal priesthood. We, we're not very familiar with the priesthood, just out of our own immediate experience. But what a priest should do, or what a priest does, is a priest stands in the gap. A, a priest bridges the gap between God and people. So in order to be an effective priest, you have to be able to identify with people. Right? You have to be able to speak their language. You have to be able to understand what they're going through in their lives, what, what their struggles are, what their victories are. You have to be able to speak their language. You have to be in their world. But in order to be an effective priest, you also have to be distinct. There has to be something different about you um, if you're going to be an effective priest bringing people to God. And uh, the, way, the way I've always explained this, um, especially to high school students, is, you know, imagine... You're friends with, with a kid in high school. And uh, you're, you're actually part of a group of friends in high school. And uh, this, friend, uh, this one friend of yours starts making really bad choices. Starts going out and doing things that you know are, are not going to be good. They're not going to end up being wise choices. They're going to end up uh, in some pretty bad places. And it just starts to kind of spiral out of control. And you see this as a friend. You see this happening in front of your eyes. There's other friends in this kid's life that are actually encouraging that. They're actually encouraging these bad choices. They're encouraging him to, to make these choices that are sending his life spinning out of control. You, on the other hand, you're not encouraging these choices, but at the same time, you haven't abandoned your friend either. You're there. You're there. A, a, an ever-present person in, the, in, this, in this friend's life. Now, when that, when that kid hits rock bottom... When he finally discovers that these choices that I've made have ended up in foolishness, these choices that I've made have gotten me into a really bad place, who do you suppose that friend is going to go to first? Is that friend going to go to this other group of individuals who are actually encouraging him down this path, patting him on the back? Or is that friend going to come to you? A person who is an ever-present person in my life, a person who I know has my back, a person who I know loves me and cares about me, but a person also who is always kind of a little bit different. A person who is always kind of there reminding me, this isn't good, this isn't a good choice. Like that's, I think, what being a priest looks like in our culture today. You're not, you're not there nagging and lecturing and, you know, preaching every chance that you get, but you are this present, this holy presence in a person's life, connecting them back to God, an, an alternative bringing them back to God. I think that's what it means to be a, a, a priesthood of believers in this world today, especially. Um, any other feedback? Got a couple minutes left. Any other ideas? I've got one I can yeah. <laughs> this is kind of like a, this is 
affects me personally, but I would imagine that there's other people in the room that probably have been affected by this similar sort of thing. I have someone in my family that is a widow um, and likes to use scripture out of context to mm-hmm. make points to set themselves uh-huh. either as a victim or uh-huh. whatever. And and first James or James one uh, twenty seven is one of her favorites because it talks about looking after orphans and widows and their distress to keep mm-hmm. oneself from being polluted by the world. Mm-hmm. How literal can you be with a text like this, or should it be widows and orphans as representation of those people in need that religious... Well, that's how I read it. But, no, but notice the phrase, in their distress. The phrase, in their distress. Um, I think what James 1 is talking about is pay attention to the most marginalized, at-risk at risk people in your lives and do what you can do to help them. Now, I, I always kind of make this point. You know, in our culture, um, you know, being a widow in, in our culture is still difficult for, for numerous reasons. Um, but we have kind of social safety nets in our culture that they didn't have in first century culture. I kind of think that the widows in our culture today are probably single moms. Um, single moms in our culture deal with some of the same stresses, some of the same anxieties, some of the same distress um, that widows in an ancient culture would have had to deal with. So I think when we limit it just to just widows and orphans, I think we're missing the point. I think James is, what James is saying is, as a church and even as an individual Christian, we have an obligation to care for those who are most at risk. Now, the other side of that, too, is what does appropriate care look like? What does appropriate care look like? Um, and this is a little bit dangerous to talk about, but I'm just a substitute teacher, so I'll go ahead and talk about it anyway. Um, we, we, had a, we had a speaker uh, um, at Ozark last, was it last week, Monty? Last week. Um, who, uh, an author, very, very accomplished author and speaker, and has, has written a lot and has studied a lot historically, just, uh, you know, charity, effective ways to help the poor, you know, things like that. That's, that's his wheelhouse. That's what he's studied um, academically for years. And, um, and he made an observation that I think is, is kind of hard to refute. He says, sometimes the care and concern that we give to the poor actually harms them more than it helps them. It actually dehumanizes them. Because a part of being human is being given the dignity of self-determination, the dignity of, of work, the dignity of creativity. That's part of being human, is the dignity of work, the dignity of creativity. And when, and when you help a person in such a way that it discourages them to work, it discourages their creativity, it discourages their dignity... You actually do more harm to them long term than you do help to them long term. And he even took it one step further. And this is, pardon the metaphor, but I, I think there's some truth to it. He even took it one step further. He said, you know, what we do with our pets, a lot of us, is we, we supply for them food and water and we have no other expectations for them outside of that. It's a complete one-way relationship. That's what we do with pets. And he says, if you... If you're paying attention, that's really what we have done with the poor in our society, too. So we give them what we think their needs are, 
and we have no other expectations. And it actually has a dehumanizing effect on people. And I, I don't want to get into the politics of it and whatever. I'm just talking about the church. And forget the government. Forget politics. Just what, what should the church be doing? I think the church should be helping those who are most at risk, those who are most in need. That's always been the case for the church. But I also think we have to be wise about the best and the most effective ways that we go about helping people. Um, I know our church in particular, we've even reevaluated some of the things that we do on the mission field. Because my dad, my dad worked um, in the Philippines for a long time with the Filipino mission. And he discovered that the way that Filipino missions had been done for decades was actually destructive and dehumanizing to the Filipino people. Because they basically had this relationship where the, the wealthy white Americans would come into the Filipino context, would give them money, would throw money at a, at a problem, and basically would try to fix the problem with American money. And the problem with that was the Filipinos were never really taking the responsibility. They were never really growing. They were never, never really, they were being dehumanized in the process. And so they actually had to change the way that they went about their mission work by empowering people rather than just um, uh, throwing money at the problem. And so we've got to be wise about that, right? We've got to be wise about how we help widows and orphans in their distress. We should always be in the business of doing that, but we've got to be wise about how we do that. I guess, is my point. Um, any other feedback? All right. Well, it's 10 till by that clock up there anyway. So I think we'll call it a night. Thanks for coming out. And um, any complaints or concerns, just take them to Jason next week. So, Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.